Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Liz Mendez on the show of Vera Wine Bar in Chicago. Hello, how are you? I am wonderful. Thanks for having me. Nice to see you. You too. So your grandmother owned a jewelry store. Yeah, she didn't own it. She ran it for almost 25 years and definitely put me to work at a very young age. And what was that like? What I mean, what's in a jewelry store besides jewelry? <laughs> besides diamonds, which aren't a bad thing for a little girl to uh, <laughs> to love. You know, a lot of china and glassware and decanters and silver that was i mean and you still see that in jewelry stores now not as much as you used to uh years back but um a lot of a lot of things that you would see in your home like in the china cabinet were a big part of what she did in her day-to-day routine so what's that mean for lunches and dinners at the house does that mean a lot of flatware and yeah you know being being i was an only child and um being uh, raised by my single mom, spent a lot of time with my grandparents and, you know, very kind of minimal means that we had for entertaining kids. <laughs> so my grandmother kind of made everything a party, even breakfast, uh, you know, putting the crystal glasses out for juice and having the flatware and whatnot. So she really made every single meal fun for me. And that was entertainment because, you know, we weren't going to the movies or the amusement parks or whatnot. Has that kind of carried with you later on? Do you still kind of see yourself as someone who sets the table? Absolutely. You know, when my grandparents used to have parties, my job, I had a couple different jobs. Um, One was to take coats and the other was to... Sucks in the summer when you get laid off. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? I, I was I was hard up as a kid for a job. Um, <laughs> I can't even afford lemonade. <laughs> what can't. is going on? Exactly. So um, taking coats, I also got to deliver drinks. And also I was a big part of cleanup duty. And I find myself doing that a Were lot. Were those two things related? <laughs> yes. Were you... <laughs> Where you're like, oh, the tray. I, I if you the don't tray hold it horizontally, so. things fall. <laughs> and then I have, so in a way. It's, right. It's, so they were also teaching me physics and mathematics <laughs> right, right, and all these right. things. Yeah. So where's Galileo with those rocks and feathers? <laughs> so, yeah. So 
that definitely is carried through. Like the two things that I played when I was a kid was restaurant and office. So I basically played work when I was a kid. So no wonder nobody wanted to come over and play work. But I'm still playing those things today. We make a joke at the restaurant all the time. It's like, let's go play restaurant. And that's what we do. So there's more like office furniture now? Yeah. And, you know, there's a fax machine. (laughs) Do people still fax? I don't know. I don't know. I I think everyone just does podcasts. Yes, exactly. So, yeah. So it definitely has carried through to today. And what was the next move for you? You went off to college. I did. I started at Indiana University and uh, started as a food science major because I wanted food to definitely be kind of a part of what I did. And then I found out what was in food and it got real scary and it wasn't very enjoyable anymore. Um, (laughs) I was like, oh, wow, that's what's in peanut butter. I don't ever want to eat peanut butter again. So kind of took the joy out of food, which was that's what it was when I was growing up was so joyful and and really a celebration. That's a peanut butter brand? Joy? <laughs> yeah, that's a new peanut butter brand. I'm coming out with it. Because I've heard of Skippy. And- <laughs> Joyful, yes. So um, switched majors and actually transferred uh, colleges and went to DePaul in Chicago and went into journalism major. And Why did you do that? You know, when I was growing up, my grandfather, he always had like National Geographic and he he cooked himself and he was always, you know, reading about food and reading about travel and, and all of these things. So it kind of circled back for me. It's like, what can I still do that may have something to do with food, but not hate it? And so journalism kind of piqued my interest in that way. And so I started on that journey at DePaul and started waiting tables to, of course, pay for my fancy private education that no one told me was going to be so expensive, and had an amazing professor at at DePaul, Edmund Lawler, who really taught me that I could combine the two, that I could actually bring all of my love of food and, and eventually wine and bring that into my media background, and that the two could work together. And where was he coming from? You know, he... Worked in Chicago at various places, but um, he had a writing background. And he taught my advertising class and a couple different classes, but writing was kind of his passion too. So I, I think he definitely saw that that was something I wanted to to pursue and, and showed me how I could, which was great. Did he do restaurant stuff? or He uh, wrote a couple books with Charlie Trotter, you know, kind of the manual lessons and service uh, that I think a lot of professionals still read today. I know I do. It's sure. on my I read that. Yeah, it's on uh, my back my back shelf behind my desk. Every time I take a taxi in Chicago, I'm like, why does the guy offer me a paper? <laughs> exactly. So he so he wrote those books with Charlie Trotter and kind of really fueled that fire for me while I was working to pay for the education on one of the most historic streets in Chicago, which was Rush Street. And this is long before we had all of the great restaurants that we have throughout Chicago. So back then, if you wanted to go out for a nice dinner, you went to Rush Street. I mean, you had Everest, you had Spiaggia, you had Charlie Trotters. Those were, and you know, Ambria, but those were kind of the really high-end restaurants. And then, so you went to Rush Street for Italian or steak. So I worked there. I worked on that street for 12 years. Where'd you work? Oh, wow. So uh, 21 years old, 
got uh, hired by Benny Sidhu, who now owns Volari and Benny's Chop House in Chicago. But he had worked for Rosebud Restaurants, so he hired me um, because I had a little bit of a background in working in this small mom-and-pop Italian place in my hometown. So he hired me, and I knew nothing about wine, of course. I'm 21. And he basically said to me, he's like, after about the second week of working there, he said, if you don't learn about wine, I'm going to fire you. <laughs> and Big minster of words. Was yeah, funny. you know, he, um, he, he didn't mess around. <laughs> uh, still doesn't to this day. He's all business. And so he... He, you know, he kind of laid it on the line. Yeah, I don't know that that would really work today. Um, you know, people are definitely don't get to be quite as um, abrupt. Yeah, I don't know what that's like before a judge. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, so, you know, probable cause. Yes. You know. So, um, so he was like, you know, you, you have to learn about wine or I'm going to fire you. And I was making extraordinary money and paying for school. And I was like, I can't lose this job. So out of fear, I started buying some pretty basic wine books. And at the time... That's how the best sommeliers get started. <laughs> out of fear. Fear, <laughs> yes. <laughs> it beat me into it, yes. So, you know, you laid that on the line and I bought some books. And at the time, we had Sam's Wine and Spirits, which was the go-to wine store back then. And, and there were some great people working there that are still in the wine business today in Chicago. And they just wanted to share their knowledge with anybody that would listen. So, of course, I wanted to listen because I wanted to keep my job. And Was and it like comic book guy or was it better than that? <laughs> it was better than that. Okay, yeah, good. it was definitely better than that. <laughs> and so that's kind of where wine started when I was. Because this is kind of the pre-internet era. Yeah, you know, you, you didn't get to Google it or we didn't have the resources too. Like we have so many resources now which are awesome um, for people to to, you know, look stuff up and, and find information out. But you had to really, you know, you had to either travel or you had to find mentors and resources, you know, in your market. So um, Sam's definitely kind of filled that void. And until later, I actually started, you know, doing some studying with with different sommeliers in the city while, and then, you know, I eventually left Rosebud and went to work for Gibson's. Um, What's that? Gibson Steakhouse, iconic steakhouse in Chicago, um, kind of the CNB scene sort of place. It's it's one of those old school places you walk in and all of the celebrities' pictures are on the wall, like going up the stairs and and the whole thing. So that that was a great mentoring experience that I had there because I had the opportunity to work for Kathy O'Malley and John Coletti. Who are they? They are kind of benchmarks of hospitality in Chicago. You know, two people that if you walk in on Valentine's Day and introduce yourself to them, you're going to come back the next Valentine's Day and, and they're still going to remember your name. Are you going to still have the same date? Or? Yeah, absolutely. Um, they'll make sure to they make a lot of love connections. Uh, for uh, I've seen a lot of things fall apart on Valentine's Day. <laughs> yes, Valentine's Day can be brutal. I've even seen like blood on the floor and stuff like that. I That New Year's Eve, I've definitely seen like first fights of the year between people on New Year's Eve. A lot of breakups are not talking on Valentine's Day. It can be kind of rough. So yeah, so I, I worked for them uh, for quite a while and really kind of, you know, they have this, they have this part of their culture, which is you only get three tables. It doesn't matter how long you've been in the business um, and what kind of experience you had and how that long. It doesn't sound like a lot of tables. It doesn't sound like a lot of tables, but that's because they really are about that guest experience and, and they teach you that. And what they teach you also is that these three tables are your business. And so that really kind of sparked that entrepreneurial spirit a little bit. 
Are you running your own food and making salads at this point? Yeah. Like, this is a question. Because like, that doesn't sound like a lot of tables. It, it's not. A, I mean, it's not a lot of tables yet. So um, Super Salad comes with every meal. And, yes, you, like, run your you run your own salad. You get your own salads, all that kind of stuff. So there definitely is that side of it, too. Um, but, you know, it was an adjustment for me, definitely working for them. I mean, I, I How say How many that, salads could you hold in one hand? <laughs> exactly. And still. How many? I'm asking. I can actually, I think I can hold five. I can That's do three, three and two. Yeah. Um, and open the door? But, well, no doors. They pushed. So, so that definitely helped. But. Did you have to back into the door or did you kick it with your foot? Um, no kicking. I think I would get in trouble for kicking. You're, you're yeah. a backwards walker yeah. through the door. <laughs> um, which now I tell people all the time, don't back up. Don't, like I, yeah, yeah, don't yeah. back up. Or I'm at the it's six to one, half dozen of the other coffee shop. Telling, I'm saying behind you. Right, I, right. Yeah, I do that I do, a lot, yeah. and I always expect people to break right. Yeah, <laughs> like get out of my way. <laughs> like, why are you not breaking right? Why are you backing this is up? So strange. <laughs> so, um, but but working there was an education in not only. Um, hospitality, but it was also an education in the test of wills because at this point I'm 24. Um, so definitely young um, in the business still and having this great opportunity to work at this iconic steakhouse, but also, you know, getting kind of beat up because I'm the young girl on the floor. How many times did you have to explain what a Gibson is? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, and You're still like, today. It comes with onions. Right. Well, and the thing is now nobody knows what a Gibson is. Oh, is that true? Really? Yeah. Even like, with so, Mad Men and all yeah, that Yeah. People are like, what's a Gibson? And I'm like, it's delicious. But yeah, so that was, it was an education in in learning to keep my composure. You, I mean, there's all regulars on that street um, that that they know the menu better than you do because they've been dining there longer than you have. Um, you know, some of them dining on Rush Street longer than we've been alive. So um, definitely uh, an education in keeping your composure, um, which would eventually benefit me later, of course, being a manager and, and now having my own business because there's a lot of times where a deep breath and a big smile can get you through some really tough situations. And and Rush Street taught me that the hard way. Definitely crying at the coffee station a couple times, which then, of course, my mentors smacked me around for. Because they were like, there's no crying in restaurants, just like there's no crying in baseball. Is that what they said? Yeah, actually. <laughs> was this before or after a League of Their Own came out? You know, um, I don't really remember which came first, but I definitely remember. Because if Madonna stole that from them. Right. She's, they should get some royalties for that. Absolutely. And it, she could afford it. Yeah. <laughs> she's going to get into the restaurant game. Um, so They just they kind of told you no crying in baseball. Yeah, absolutely. And. I still yeah to kind of pick it up. Yeah, I still remember that today. You know, like some days it's tougher than others to own your own business, especially a small any small business, not just restaurants, but any small business. So, kind of pick yourself up by the bootstraps if it's tough. Did you find it more difficult as a woman in your twenties working in restaurants? Yes and no. You know, the physical part of actually working in restaurants was easy at that age. You know, I wish I had that strength now and knowing what I know, but. That's, of course, part of growing old in this business. It's like that Jack London story about the boxer. Yeah. You know? He like, knows how to be a great boxer right when his career is over. Right, because his anymore. body can't handle it anymore. And I feel like that's definitely restaurants, too. You know, We get to the point where the body just wears out. The physical side of it w- was easy and, and stamina and, and a lot of doubles and all of those kind of things were easily to come by. The emor- emotional side of it was tough, for sure. But we also, working on Rush Street, like... You had to know your stuff or people sent you home. So that was like mid shift. 
Absolutely. You know, somebody comes up to you and says, you know, what's in the sauce? And you can't tell them what's in the sauce. You're going home. And it was a punishment, of course. But Did they tell you the name of the sauce first? (laughs) Yeah. You had to like, (laughs) tell me what's in the sauce. Um, Which sauce are you talking (laughs) about? (laughs) The Bernays. Um, So it definitely, but it was a different time when there weren't so many restaurants and so many jobs. Like Chicago can definitely... You can look at Chicago right now and say that it it might be a bit saturated with restaurants. And back then it wasn't. So people were fighting for those jobs. So you really had to know yourself. So as as a woman, I would say definitely there were difficulties. But because there were such strict guidelines of knowing your ingredients and your wines and, you know, being held accountable, it made it easier eventually just because then people eventually respect that, that it's like, okay, you know the food, you know the wine, and, and you can hold your own and have my back on the floor. So that was definitely a great educational experience, even though it was a hard one. What was Chicago like in terms of dining then to now? I mean, you said there's more restaurants. Are the restaurants the same kind of restaurants and there's more of them? Or are they different kind of restaurants? What's changed in, say, 20 years? Oh, my gosh. It's changed so much. You know, like I said, back then you had ultra fine dining, you know. Uh, you know, back in the day you had like Gordon's and you had Charlie Trotter's and Everest and Spiaggia, like I said, and then you had Italian and steakhouses. That's kind of the way it went. And now the, it's completely shifted to the point where you can have casual restaurants with no tablecloths and still they have a chef, they're working with seasonal ingredients, local ingredients, and they have, you know, extraordinary wines that would uh, the same as a fine dining would. So there's this casual kind of, it's what we call relaxed excellence at Vera, but there's this higher level of dining in a casual environment that has kind of taken over. And I, I think part of that is where the economy led us. People and in a certain time and place stopped buying the super high-end wines and you know said, okay, I can't afford to dine in the white tablecloth or if I do go out, I'm only going to have a couple plates or, or this or that. So you definitely saw that landscape change. It's interesting. Chicago Magazine did Best New Restaurants, I think, like two years ago, where they said there wasn't one traditional menu of first course, you know, appetizer, entree, dessert. It was either every restaurant that had been selected was either shared plates or tasting menus. And what I've seen is, is that that has been sort of the trend that's moving but still you're now you're starting to see people get back to the old school like old school italian and you know in the chicago way and so it's it's changed a lot many more options which i think is good still can be like i said it can be saturated a lot of choices and people don't dine out as much in chicago as they do in say new york or san francisco so a lot of competition do people come from other cities to dine in restaurants in chicago or is that a very limited pool or is that I think I think they do absolutely. Obviously, we're so fortunate to have the, one of the top restaurants in the world. We have Alinea here, which is great, and people. I thought you were going to say Vera. Wine <laughs> yeah, right, Vera, number nine <laughs> restaurant, Vera Wine Bar and Restaurant. Um, no, so um, one day maybe. I'm just saying. I thought you were going to say <laughs> girl, that. Girl can have dreams. So um, to have that is great, and so you do get a lot of international, you know, travel from that, and and people from from around the United States. Um, and then, you know, you have, I think that people come here for those higher end dining experiences. And then what's great is, you know, there's a great chef's community. 
So then, you know, if you dine at Grace tonight, they may say, okay, well, dine at these three more casual places while you're in town. So I think that there's a trickle-down effect from that from the people who do come and travel to Chicago to dine here. So you think the restaurant community kind of looks out for itself? Absolutely. It's interesting. We have great chefs like Paul Kahn um, with his whole group of one-off hospitality. And obviously Charlie Trotter put out, you know, so many chefs that still are involved in the community today. And, you know, having people who've been my mentors who work for Charlie, it's all about giving back. And I think that that's a trickle down, which has been great. So I definitely think that the chefs have kind of had that community and looked out for one another. And I think that the wine world in Chicago is catching up to that. So you think it was chefs first? Absolutely. The United States in, in general can kind of in the wine world be very examination focused. And I would say that Chicago even more so than a lot of other markets in, in the United States. And so there was kind of this guarded competition rather than healthy competition in Chicago for a long time. And that's changing, which a lot of us are really excited to see because we there's a few of uh, professionals in the city who say it doesn't matter what path you take to become a wine professional as long as we're all having healthy competition, kind of like New York. I mean, New York, there's so many people in the community who they have competition, but they're still pumping each other up. And Chicago's starting to definitely adopt that, which is really great to see. Because for a long time, it was that guarded kind of don't share information and and I'm doing this. And if you're not doing this, then we're not on the same level. And that's changing. And I, I think that it's following that path of the chefs in the city who have helped one another and they just want the market to be a destination for food. And, and I think there's a lot of wine professionals now that want to see that for Chicago as well. So you said it was steakhouses, really high-end dining and old school Italian. Mm-hmm. But then you went to Carnival, and that seemed more of a Spain and then also South America yeah. and Latin influences. And you were there for five years. What was that like? 35,000 square feet, over 600 seats. It was an adjustment coming from Rush Street where you knew everybody's name that walked in the door and you know, really kind of that attention to detail with your guests now having people come in and say, oh, I was in your restaurant last night and you didn't even know it because it's, you know, so big. So it was really learning finesse in a place that big. And the focus of of my wine studies before I went to Carnival was predominantly California and Italy. And so very new world versus old world. And what was great at Carnival was that I was able to take kind of that information and, and those two mindsets and really delve into South American wine as well as, as Spanish wine. And it was the first time that I had actually ever worked with a chef, a chef that was, you know, cooking for wine and and cocktails and all these things and, and really being able to collaborate with a chef. That's the first time that I was ever able to do that. What was his name? His name is Mark Mendez. What's your name? My name is Liz Mendez. Oh, you have the same last name. We do. Um, that happens when you get married. <laughs> <laughs> when did that happen? Um, we uh, got married five years ago. Um, and yeah, so we met at Carnival. And he, uh, to say that 
my my husband is old school would be an understatement. And so um, when we first met, you know, of course he thinks, oh, here comes another wine geek that doesn't care about food or, you know, like wants to have a whole wine list full of Jura wines or something. And and then he got to know me and, and realized my... That that was true. Yeah, that was true. <laughs> that all I want to do is drink Jura wines. <laughs> yeah. I tried that at Vera. He didn't go for that part of the business plan. Um, so he he really saw that I had a dedication to, to food and, and I was absolutely blown away with his dedication to wine and the rest is kind of history about us getting together. And yeah, so we we ran Carnival together. He was obviously the executive chef and I was the wine director and service director for five years. And it was there that we fell in love with Spain. How did that come about? For me, it, it started, it definitely started with having access to some some old school houses. You know, my first kind of moment where I fell in love with Spain was with was with Muga. Those wines just they they blew me away back then because, you know, before that, Spain kind of has this very modern versus traditional thing going on, I think more so than a lot of other European countries. I would say more than anybody. Yeah. I like mean, or at least more obviously. Yeah. And it it shows through in the wine and the food and even when you go there, then the architecture. And so the Muga wines really spoke to me because before that it was either before I started working at Carnival, it was either, you know, cheap $10 bottles of Rioja that you could find at the grocery store or something huge and big, sort of like a an Emilio Moro or something, which mm-hmm. is like mm-hmm. to- totally on the opposite end. So so Muga was where it really spoke to me. And, and I was very fortunate because the local distributor for Jorge Ordonez, uh wines was Robert Hood. And he he had worked at Charlie Trotter's and he really took me under his wing. He was very nice to me when I was a very young buyer. And I would probably look back on that now 10 years later and say that I was fortunate to have him do that for me because there were there was a lot of things I didn't know. Um, and he really showed me kind of the breadth that that Spain can offer. And so that's where it really started for me with Spain. But Ardones is usually thought of as a more modern book. Did you find yourself gravitating to some of the more traditional producers as well? Because it, it felt like you had been kind of turned on by some more traditional stuff. Or how did it work? Absolutely. So, you know, it was, you know, taking that from that modern side, that kind of that big American oak that that portfolio is kind of known for. And then I stum- stumbled upon our Lopez de Heredia and kind of started learning about those wines and and so so much history there and and then eventually the Reventos family and and seeing what sparkling wine could do in Spain which you know for the price point if you took those wines if you took some of those older aged vintage wines like from Reventos and you put those in champagne they would be triple what they what they cost now. Um, so let's not do that. Yeah, no. Let's, <laughs> like, let's, like, let's keep Pepe and his family. Let's keep those uh, where they belong, which is in Spain, of course. So so I definitely found myself kind of gravitating towards that that old world style of wines, maybe even even to to a fault, because I had worked so much with you know, New World wines and, you know, South American and California. So I found I definitely gravitated towards the old world style. And just as kind of an alternative after some gateway, bigger flavors. Absolutely. Um, Just finding that delicacy, you know, it was really easy, obviously, to work with California wines when it's steak on a plate. 
But then now finally working with a chef and, and having him, he's got, you know, Italian cooking background, but then, you know, he's Puerto Rican. So definitely finding different nuances and flavor profiles that can go with, go with that food. Um, was and a having an emotional tie to wanting to showcase the food. Absolutely. Always. And not over, overdo it. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's interesting now, like, you know, we do a lot of wine dinners and, and that was kind of where, you know, we said, it's like these wine dinners that we're doing that are only 50 people, like this is what we eventually want to do, you know, get away from the 35,000 square feet, huge place. And, and when we would do these wine dinners, it was every time it was like, it's about the wine. It's not necessarily about the food. And then of course, on my side of things, I'm like, it's about the food and, you know, it's about that together at the did table. Did people ever confuse you? <laughs> did, people, did people ever ask if you were Mark? Um, no, you know, um, we're, we're pretty two distinctive individuals. So, yeah, we don't necessarily get confused for one another. But that... Vera is about 50 seats. So that's, it is, yeah, uh, about 50 seats. It's so funny, too. People come in, if they've known us from Carnival Days, and they're like, wow, this, is, this isn't really your style. And I actually say it is we're actually getting back to our style because he had you know he worked in new york for a while but he also he worked at spiaggia here and you know and then obviously my days working you know on rush street where you know everybody's name that was us getting back to that so kind of getting back to the roots a little bit for both of us from a cooking standpoint for him and and from a hospitality standpoint for me somewhere along the line something with sherry sort of happened because you're sort of (laughs) known for that yeah, I'm a sherry pusher. That's actually what what people will say. Um, I kind of give a little for free now, and and then people come back for more, which is good. A boomerang, so many. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so when we were at Carnival, Hamoni Berico became legal in the United States, and Mark was one of the first chefs in Chicago to to get a leg. And so we had this really eccentric distributor who was like, you know, he's hand delivering all the hams. So he's walking in the back door with a ham and he's got this 375 milliliter bottle, something in his hand. And so every account that he went to when he delivered them for the first time, he would slice a little bit of ham off and be like, we have to drink this. And it was Fino Sherry. And, you know, I, I drank it and I just, I looked at Mark and I said, this this is a wine that we need to be working with. And, and Carnival wasn't that place, you know. People in a, in a restaurant where, you know, you're selling like 3,000 mojitos a week, I don't necessarily know that that's the market for people to be sipping Fino Sherry. So definitely fell in love with it there. And it, at the time, Sherry, I think, was in this state still where sommeliers loved it and, and championed it and could really make a splash on a tasty menu because you're kind of locked into whatever the pairings are going to be. But... What was happening for a lot of other people is, you know, people were buying sherry and it was sitting on the shelf. And so, you know, as a fiscally responsible beverage manager, you don't do that very many times before someone says, hey, that's not making us any money and we need to stop doing that. So it was kind of this vicious cycle where sherry didn't really get a lot of play. And so I was like, you know, this is this is something that is super special and I, th- I think that, you know, we should incorporate this into what we do at Vera. And then fast forward to about a year before we opened, I got introduced to the De Maison portfolio, which 
they have, have one, some good sherry. Yeah, <laughs> to say that they have some good sherry houses would, would be an understatement for sure. And they also have a very extensive book. So I was really able to, you know, they, they have five different houses that they work with. And I was really able to kind of see how sherry can take you from the beginning of a meal to the end. Um, Is that I, something you found? Yeah, um, I did it. And during that summer, I actually I started, we had lunch. Um, we were having lunch and then um, eventually ended up at a local wine shop for the rest of the afternoon because it was like how it was taking us all the way. So definitely got to see how that worked. And now we're doing that at, at Vera. Sherry for each course. Yeah. So, you know, how we talk about it with our guests is like we have this this phrase that we say was where Sherry fits. And Fino can fit in where champagne would, Amontillado where white wine would, Olorosa with red wine, and then obviously the the dessert at the end with either cheese or or um, some sort of pastry or whatnot. So we definitely have found that it works, and people are surprised too, which is also fun. So we're giving them an experience that they aren't necessarily getting in a lot of other wine bars in Chicago. Do you think that's really one of the keys? Is that you're giving people a hook? that stands out that in a market where maybe there are a lot of traditional Italian, maybe there are a lot of steakhouses, maybe there are, you know, a couple generations of really high end dining that you're like, Hey, we do this thing that's different. We specialize in that. If you have an interest in trying something off the grid a little bit, you could come here. Has yeah. that helped you out in terms of a small business model? Yes and no. You know, I'm not going to lie. It, Anybody who says, Oh, I want to open a wine bar. I'm like, well, you come talk to me and my husband before you do, because what do you tell them? I'm really brutally honest with them that it's hard. Being a small business owner is difficult in any profession. But opening a wine bar, I mean, there's not a lot of payoff in wine. Like you make your money in in booze and spirits in restaurants. And that doesn't necessarily happen on the wine bar side of things. So when we first opened Vera, we didn't have any spirits at all. It was just beer and wine. Was that an easier license to get? You know, it's different in Chicago. Your liquor license is your liquor license. So if you have a liquor license, you can buy everything. There isn't like a specialized license, uh, how it can be in other states. So um, You just forgot to order vodka. I did. Um, <laughs> conveniently. You know, we wanted to really focus on the wine, and but people like cocktails. I like cocktails. So my husband at this point isn't just a chef. He's a business owner, and he said, we need to have spirits. When we did need he to have that conversation with you. Was what? he like holding waffles in the morning? And he's like, <laughs> I made these for you, but maybe they're not for you. Maybe depending on what I'm you want to do. Throw these out. <laughs> Depends on whether you're going to place the vodka order. Right. No. And I mean, he really did kind of have to shake me out of this. You know, it, we can definitely say that we're not going to be for everybody, but we need to be profitable for some people. Yeah. For <laughs> like some people. A, a fair amount of people. <laughs> right. Yeah, He's yeah. like, we still need people to actually sit in the seats. So, and you know, those are things that I would definitely, you know, share with people today that you have to realize that make the money that you will make on a wine bar isn't necessarily going to fund the retirement and it can be difficult. So. Cause sometimes it seems like Chicago's more of a hard liquor town than other towns. Absolutely. And that, again, you know, going back to this this wine community and a lot of people who are pushing it, you know, because we weren't necessarily sort of this band of sommeliers in the city, like working together to have Chicago be considered a wine destination. You had a lot of breweries popping up and it's it's a spirits town for sure. And 
there's a whole group of bartenders throughout the city who they take care of each other and they support one another and their brands. So you didn't really necessarily see that with the wine community. And I mean, again, people, people like spirits, they like beer. So, but you're starting to, you're starting to see that now grow in the, in the wine world too, in the market. Cause I remember when Trotter like banned vodka and stuff. Yeah. No cocktails at all. Dining room. Yeah. And he took a lot of flack for that. A lot. Like, it wasn't like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, Charlie has spoken and we're all going to yeah. follow along. Why would yeah. I have ordered a cocktail? <laughs> right. Yeah. And, you know, and that it was a huge deal for people. It's like, if I want to have a drink, I want to have a drink, you know, before I, before I sit down for dinner. So, but of course, in Charlie's mind, he's like, it's destroying your palate and not necessarily really getting you ready for food. And, you know, but I we're- I think somebody missed a big- business opportunity by opening a bar next door right <laughs> like, <laughs> like a martini bar yeah. yeah like just like come have a martini before you go have dinner at not even that fancy just like liquor loses. <laughs> like just put your mouth on this ice right and we're gonna pour this here before you go to your thousand dollar dinner yes get you really schnockered before you go have dinner with those guys <laughs> the, they would have loved that too i'm sure but um yeah so definitely chicago is finally kind of embracing that wine community and and pushing that together pushing that forward together for guests to understand that wine isn't scary and you know it doesn't have to be a special occasion and those kind of things so that is definitely helped in the in the marketplace for the wine community so do you you do think that's happened though that over say the last 10 years people have started to look at it as more of a, a regular thing as opposed to a specialized thing absolutely um having a bottle of wine with dinner was a celebration for sure you know 10 15 years ago and now you you know it's everyday everyday life people especially you know also What's a little bit different in Chicago and Illinois is that you can purchase wine in the grocery store. So, um, you know, people are picking up a bottle of wine to actually consume that night and have it with dinner. So it is becoming, you know, because as as Americans, for the most part, like we didn't grow up with wine at the table as a whole. I mean, we didn't grow up like understanding that, you know, we should be having this with our meal. So, but I think that it's getting there now and, and in Chicago too, that it's not necessarily a celebration, that it's it's a part of, of the table. When I remember thinking back to like the mid late nineties when it seemed like there was more of a cocktail situation going on, the wines that were popular were also moving towards higher alcohol. Sure. And there's probably several reasons for that. But one of them I thought was if you like cocktails, you probably like a higher impact kind of alcohol hit. Absolutely. You know, you're probably used to that. Yeah. And it can segue you into drinking wine if it's 15% rather than, say, 12. Right. But, uh, the, I call those <laughs> martini wines. Yeah. But, you know, sherry's high alcohol. It is. Does um, that help or hurt it? I, you know, in the beginning, especially when we didn't have spirits, it helped it a lot because someone would come in and say, you know, okay, I want a, a vodka martini. And I'd say, well, I've got something that is going to act as an aperitif and also give you that that kick that you're looking for. So that helped a little bit. It definitely, when you start getting into like the the Amontillados and the Olorosos, when you really start getting into that higher alcohol level, it's difficult to do it without food because people just aren't expecting that level of alcohol. But it's also about the fact that it's got that balance. And, and with food, people 
that definitely the alcohol isn't as intense for people. So it helped in the beginning, like I said, when we didn't have spirits and, you know, pairing it with food definitely makes it a little bit easier. I found the VORS wines kind of difficult to serve really in a restaurant because they, they're so condensed. They take a while to kind of un, unspool everything that they got going and they can be a little difficult to find a place for. How have you worked with those wines? We have a couple different VORS wines on the list and what we do a lot of times, I find the Amontillado category to be a little bit easier to to work with those. And especially, like you said, unwinding, you know, there's times where if we get a new bottle in, sometimes we'll open it even if we're, we're not serving it right then, just so that it can actually open up a bit because it definitely does change from, you know, day one to day five. So, you know, let it, allowing those to open a bit is a, a great thing. And a lot of times what what we do is we use some of the VRS wines as kind of gateway sherry, especially on the Amontillado side of things, because a lot of times I don't pair, I don't even pair the VRS stuff. Um, a lot of times I'll use it as that first sherry that they have, because sometimes Fino and, and Manzanilla can be really abrasive for people. They're really kind of taken aback when you when you have that without food, if, if you don't love it. I mean, there's that oxidized kind of quality and and sort of... I grew up loving tea. Tea was a big part of of my life when I was growing up with my grandmother. So I find that a lot in sherry. And there's definitely an aspect of tea that some people don't like. And I think that that comes through in sherry too. So a lot of times with the the VRS stuff, we will have it be by itself. So, you know, it can kind of, kind of showcase itself, but not fight against some of the, some of the food that you would traditionally maybe pair with an Amontillado. What about Spanish wine in general? What have you worked uh, with that's been successful as a gateway and what's a little bit more difficult to introduce to consumers in the Chicago market? Rioja sells itself and and rightly so. I mean, there are there are some fantastic houses in in Rioja that can really show the the balance that Spain can offer. And again, like we talked about that traditional and and modern side that there, you know, that you see both of those in Spain. So that's been really great for having a predominantly Spanish wine list is that if someone comes in and they typically like California wine, I have a modern version of, let's say, a wine from Roberto del Duero, and they love it. You know, Emilio Moro is a great example of that. You know, it's definitely got kind of, it's just down the road from Alejandro Fernandez and Pascara and talk about two very different styles of wine, you know. And so that's been fun because we can kind of find something for everyone. If people want that kind of dirty old like barn Spanish floor type of wine, we have that too. So that's been great. So Rioja has been pretty easy. And Albarino has definitely found its place, I think, on everyday wine list, which is great. And so pairing up the whites with the food has been has been fun to turn people on to. Sometimes I'm surprised when I look at Spanish lists because I feel like all the reds are over 100 bucks. Is that somewhat of a challenge? Because I feel like the things that are less are kind of supermarket brands and everybody in the market seems to want to, it's almost like a prestige thing. Like my wine is good, so it should be this price. Even when you get the idea from their economy and stuff that they may be sitting on stock that they can't move. Yeah. We kind of saw that too before we opened Vera and something that that Mark and I wanted to do. And again, I don't know if the business professors out there are definitely going to agree with our, our business model, but he wanted to work with ingredients that 
super high-end restaurants worked with and and give it at an affordable price. You know, give people an everyday opportunity to try Elysian Fields farm lamb and and stuff like that. So I did the same thing on the wine. And so that's the other thing too, is if somebody comes to me and they say, well, you know, is having a wine bar profitable? And I say, not necessarily. I also don't do like a four-time markup on on the wines because I want people to be able to experience them. And it's not going to do me any good if it sits on the shelf, you know, to buy a wine once and then to never buy it again. It, it doesn't help anybody in, in the process. So um, my markup is a little bit lower. And, but I, we did see that, that you had kind of these trophy wines of Spain and, and they, they definitely exist. And, you know, if we're working with those, maybe don't charge what everybody else is charging, maybe two miles away. And that's, that's worked out for us. I mean, sometimes people ask, they're like, is this price right? Is this a half bottle? What is this? And it's like, no, the price is right. And, you know, it's, it's worked out in our benefit where people are finding that they can enjoy those higher end wines for, for Spain. But what we've also done is we've, we are very lucky to work with a lot of importers and distributors who have given us exceptional quality at kind of a mid price point, which is great too. So we've, we've kind of found that sweet spot with a lot of wines, both in Spain and, and throughout Europe and, and a few in, in new world wines as well. So sometimes I find it interesting because in many ways, when you look at a restaurant wine list where they try to have all the greats of the world, you see obviously a lot of Burgundy, still some Bordeaux, you know, California, and uh, you see a fair amount of Italy often. But with Spain, I feel like it's Vegas, Sicilia, Lopez, and they might have Pesquera or mm-hmm. one more, or maybe like Moro or something. Is it still ghettoized in other markets that are other restaurants? And does that give you a chance to be like, hey, look at all this stuff we've got? And do you find that people just aren't familiar with the wines often because of limited exposure? No, I I think that, you know, it, it was interesting. So we had a, a collector who did a dinner with us, like a, just a private dinner for friends uh, at Vera. And it, he brought in all of this Vegas Cecilia. Like that's why he was coming there to have Mark you know, create a menu and, and work with these wines and for his friends, which was a huge honor. So I, you know, I took a picture like we all do Instagram, everything. And, you know, just saying how excited I was to be able to like work with the wines and and do this menu. And so many people just went berserk. Like, when is this dinner? Can I buy tickets? Can I come? And so that was kind of telling to us that there's a gap in the market for, those old vintage Spanish wines, um, which is after that dinner, now we're starting to build our collection of old vintage uh, wines that maybe people can't necessarily get their hands on and working with verticals and stuff. So I think that that opportunity is definitely there and that people are aware of it. And what I think is the challenge is getting people to think about Spanish wine, like in an everyday setting, you know, it's like, Okay, well, if you're, you know, you're just going to have a glass of Pinot Noir, well, you could have just have a glass of Tempranillo. So it's also taking it past those those big trophy houses and trophy wines and and understanding it's like you can still have a glass of Bourgogne, well, you can just have a glass of Tempranillo. So that can sometimes be the challenge of a go-to choice when it comes to Spanish wine, I think. How do you get over those hurdles? I mean, if someone comes in and says, I'll have a glass of Pinot Noir, what what is the the way that you 
from a hospitality background, which has always been big for you. Yes. How do you politely say, well, you know, what we really offer is Tempranillo and Garnacha. Sure. Yeah. You know, definitely the wine list and, and the staff has been trained to say, okay, well, if you like, if you like this grape, then you should try this. And that's definitely helped. We have a, I have a regular of mine who every time he comes in and he loves the restaurant and, and you know, loves wine. And he always says, you know, you need more new world wine. You need more, you know, you need more California, this and that. And, you know, one of the things I always tease him is, is I'm like, we've always found you something that, that you love. So, you I know, keep seeing you. Yeah, here, you're still coming. <laughs> yeah, so you, yeah. you must not hate the wine list that much. Um, so, um, you know, turning people on to Garnacha if they do like New World wine because it's got kind of that fruit component a lot of times. Or if someone, you know, does like Big Bordeaux, you can go to Roberto del Duero and, and find them something usually that, that they'll enjoy. So it's that hurdle that we find how we get over it is, okay, tell me what you like and listening to people because that's what we do in hospitality is we have to listen and listening to what they tell us and then saying, okay, well, you might like this. and I kind of have this mentality at Vera and my entire staff definitely knows it is that I'll pretty much open anything. It's like, I'll open anything. And we kind of had this recurring theme with people. It's like, well, if you don't like it, it's okay. Cause we'll drink it at the end of the night. And I mean, it's, it's an educational experience definitely for the staff, but I think that guests are used to people, even though we're in hospitality, not being very hospitable when it comes to wine you know, okay, well, if this bottle is, you know, 60, 70, 80, $100, are they really going to open it for me? And if I don't like it, I don't have to buy it. And we'll pretty much open anything. It's like if somebody really, really wants something by the glass, it's like, all right, let's open it and make it happen. So I think that that has definitely helped us in some of our hurdles, kind of really being on their side and opening pretty much anything that we have on the list. Because if somebody would take back the steak for being medium instead of medium rare, you know, why not take back the bottle for not being the thing? Yeah, absolutely. We had this, you know, we always have people come in and it's like if they don't like something, it's like they almost feel bad for the most part, like like saying they don't want the wine. And it's like, it's okay. Like some, some people don't like peas. It's okay. You, you don't, you don't have to order them. You don't have to eat them. So kind of the same kind of mentality in the wine too. What's it like working and knowing Spanish producers during a period of economic decline for Spain? What kind of reactions are you getting from people? And when you see them in town, what kind of conversations do you have? You know, it's interesting. I, I just traveled to Portugal as well, and they are in quite a financial crisis in, in that country. And, and I was in Spain a couple summers ago. And first and foremost, both countries, after traveling to, people are just grateful that you want to champion what they're doing. And 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 spend money with them. So it's definitely gratitude first and also let's educate the world on how Spain can really compete with so many different other areas of the world. You know, it's like from that traditional perspective, they can definitely kind of compete with both French and Italian wines. And then on that modern side, they can compete with California and South America. So they, it's, it's gratitude and, and education, really. That they're just we just uh, we just did a great lunch with Telmo Rodriguez, who is very intense guy about his story and and about Spain's story. You know he he wants to tell that story on a on a regular basis, and he's kind of intense about it. But I love that. You know it it comes through to show like all of the passion that that goes into the wines of Spain. 
So that's been that's been fun. Sometimes I find the Spanish are particularly um, heavy with the nationalistic pride, along with like Argentinians. I find. Yeah, even even within the regions, traveling to Spain it was interesting. A couple summers ago, I was in Ribeiro del Duero, and we got there, and we had been drinking. Pretty much, if you drink white wine, like if you have white wine at all, like with lunch or something, it's it's Verdejo from Rueda. And so we'd been drinking really big, bold, oaky, you know, Tinto Fino, Tempranillo all day. And a friend of mine and I, when we got back to the hotel, everybody's kind of out in the courtyard and a few people are drinking gin and tonics, which... Um, oh, are popular there. Yes, very popular. We, I actually, our hotel did all different garnishes based on the botanicals in the gin, which I can compl- love that. I completely ripped that off and brought yeah, it back yeah, to there. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, last summer, you know, all of our like got, the juniper berries. And yeah. The and, 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 you know, like glass. apple and, you know, cinnamon and, and orange and stuff like that. So Do you use the goblet glasses, like the wine glasses. you know, I, I like to help people get a good buzz on, but I think that in the United States, the goblet gin and tonics can be a little dangerous. Um, so we've stayed away from that. But, you know, everyone, you know, when I got back, they're like, oh, this is a brilliant idea. And I'm like, yeah, can't claim it. I definitely stole it from my hotel in Spain. But when we, so a lot of people were drink, drinking gin and tonics, but everybody kind of wanted a refreshing wine. So we had gone to the bar and, and grabbed a couple bottles of cava. And uh, Juan Carlos uh, from Viscara was in the bar who he doesn't speak very much English, but he started yelling at us in, in Spanish and a little bit of English telling us that we should not be drinking cava in Roberto Duero. Like it was basically like a sin. So that national nationalistic pride even comes into the regions. Like in Spain, Spaniards drink the wine of their region. They don't, you know, if you go to Galicia, you're not going to see a lot of people drinking Rioja. So they're very prideful, which which comes through in their wines and when they when they travel to Chicago for sure. Comparing Chicago to the New York market, a lot of people in New York would say like 50-seat restaurant, hard to make money. I mean, can you pay rent in Chicago on 50 seats and do turnover and make it happen? Is it a little bit more of an option here? I think so. We are, we're a small, small operation, you know, definitely what's kind of happened in Chicago, like beyond the, the let us entertain you, but what's happened in Chicago is you're starting to see these like big restaurant groups, a lot of which my friends work for. And while there is that community aspect where people within those groups are sending other people to smaller places. So you mean independent groups, not like hotels, but they have several different restaurants. Right. Like, you know, the Boca Group and One-Off Hospitality and uh, Hogsall, uh, which is uh, Brandon Sonikoff's. You know, you have these big groups and being a small independent restaurant can be difficult because you don't have just the huge force behind you to be promoting all of your different restaurants and sending, you know, I remember when we were at, when we were at Gibson's, it was, you know, if Gibson's was packed, then they would just send people next door to Hugo's Frog Bar because they could still get the same menu. And of course, that happens in any group. You want to keep the money within within your walls. So, being a small independent restaurant, you don't necessarily have that. But fifty seats, obviously, rents are not nearly what they are in New York. And it's possible to be successful and, and pay the rent, but you have to be a smart business person. You know, so many people are like, oh, well, I was a bartender or I was a sommelier and now I want to open my own restaurant. And one of the things that Carnival definitely gave my husband and I was a whole biz, a whole behind the scenes of the business. And 
that is my thing is that, you know, anybody, like I say, when people say they want to open a place, I say, come talk to us. And one of the things I ask them right up front is, you know, like, what is your background in numbers? Like, what do you know about the actual business side of things? Because if you don't, you're in for a world of hurt. And so that's been a learning experience. I mean, Mark had been cooking well over 20 years before we opened Vera and I had been working front of house over 15 and, you know, we still had a huge learning curve. So it can be difficult, but it's also, you know, you built something. So there's a reward there too, uh, which is great, but definitely tread lightly and, and know what you're getting into when you're opening a small place like that. What are instances besides the addition of liquor items where you felt like the business hat that you wear affected the sommelier hat that you wear at the same restaurant? The liquor side definitely affected it. And also when we first opened, everything was predominantly old world. So almost everything was Spanish, Italian, and French. And that, you know, that definitely gravitated towards where I was in in my career and at, when we were at Carnival, because it was such a big place, you had to be all things to all people. So I kind of got this sommelier chip on my shoulder where it was, okay, well, I don't have to work with New World Wines anymore. I don't have to have Argentinian Malbec. <laughs> now I say that Argentinian Malbec pays the bills so I can drink Burgundy. Um, and, you know, but I very much, when we first opened, was all very hardcore, this is going to be old world. And then as a business owner, I'm like, I'm being an idiot because I'm losing out on sales for people who don't necessarily have the palate that I do. And that was a huge change for me. You know, everybody wants to create a list that they want to drink. They That's the list that everybody kind of wants to put together. But as a business owner, that's not necessarily the smartest idea. So, you know, the, the business hat definitely affected that. And we brought in some higher end Argentinian Malbec, you know, stuff that you're not going to find at, at the grocery store necessarily, but, you know, and some California wines. And I've always kind of had a little bit of an affection for Pacific Northwest wines, which work well with Spanish food. But I had to bring in those kind of heavy hitters, those higher alcohol wines that that people wanted, no matter what they were eating. So that definitely was a, a big switch for me on the wearing the business hat versus the sommelier hat when we first opened. So it's been three years at Vera. Have you thought about opening a second outlet? Yes, uh, we have. And we, you know, one of the things that Mark and I want to make sure is that we never take away from Vera to do that. And it's it's interesting, still, still to this day, three years later, somebody will text me and say, hey, I'm coming in to Vera tonight. And I say, oh, well, you know, I'm not there, but I have, you know, most of the people who come to Vera, they all know my staff, which I am very lucky. I have a great staff. And I say, but, you know, A, B, and C personnel, they'll make sure you have a great time. Oh, well, then I'll come another time. So, you know, we still deal with kind of that mom and pop. Everybody wants to see us. You know, I was talking with another restaurateur um, recently, and he said to me, he's like, people expect us to be in our restaurants 24-7. You know, people don't expect doctors to be a doctor all day long, all night long, but that happens in this business. So um, we definitely want to open a second place and have been looking actively and have a couple different concepts based on neighborhoods, but we won't do it until it won't compromise the integrity of, of our first place. And would you stay with Spain if it were another place or would, do you think that it would make sense for you to do something else? Definitely do something different. 
with Mark having uh, Puerto Rican heritage, um, something that he really wants to get back to is kind of the cooking of, of his family. Um, so that's always been something that that we've wanted to do and really kind of maybe go a different direction from the beverage side of things to explore the cocktails and, and the beer. And, you know, there's, we have so many great breweries in, in Chicago, you know, and a couple new ones that are popping up that are really food focused. You know, uh, Moody Tongue is an, a new brewery that just uh, started in Chicago and it's Jared Rubin is, he was um, one of the brewers at Goose Island and then went out on his own and he's actually culinary trained. So he's chef trained. So um, you have, you have that kind of thing going on in the beer world. So, you know, to maybe explore that kind of Puerto Rican cooking with different beverages is exciting for me too. Who's the consumer in Chicago? Sometimes I hear stories about really heavy hitter wine collectors. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sometimes I hear stories about a little bit more of an intellectual base or a student base coming out of some of the schools in the area. And then sometimes I hear about different ethnic neighborhoods in Chicago. Who comes to a Spanish wine bar and restaurant of a fairly high caliber in Chicago? What's, What's normal? You know, what is interesting about having such a focus like Spanish cuisine is, I think, anything with a, any small restaurant. But first and foremost, your clientele is very different during the week than it is on the weekend. And so during the week are going to be people who are maybe a little bit more food focused, a little bit more adventurous and neighborhood, like the neighbor, definitely neighborhood people. And so that can be your consumer at a small place like Vera during the week. A lot of industry people, you know, who, again, are, are supporting one another and, and going out to various restaurants. And then on the weekends, it changes. You get a lot of tourism. I think with any big city, that happens too. And, and a lot of people from the suburbs that are coming down into the city. So what people will spend money on changes. You know, it's people who maybe they know those big, those you know, big California wineries is like, that's what they're looking for on the weekends. Whereas then we get to have, we get to have fun with Jura and Chocoli and all of those kind of things during the week. So the consumer, I think definitely changes, especially for small neighborhood place like ours. But you, you'd also have, like you said, those, those heavy hitters who are wine collectors and, and they know their stuff. And if they know that you have something sort of special, so you can use social media to, to put that out there. Um, they know that. I mean, there's been a lot of times where you, I put a certain wine up and five people come in, three people who work in the restaurants and, you know, two collectors and they're like, I'm here for that wine. That's specifically why I'm here. So I, the consumer so changes. Engaging on the social media side sounds like it is important to you with the wine program. Absolutely. There definitely is kind of this, I was just, you know, chatting with a few importers and a lot of times certain Sams will put something on Instagram and then everybody's calling that importer saying, I have to have this right now, you know, and it's like, well, that's sold out and it's been sold out for three years, you know, so it's not going to be available for you to buy. So, but social media is very powerful in, I think, both from a food perspective in the chef's world, as well as in the wine world, because I don't know that the wine world necessarily has groupies, so to speak, that aren't in, that aren't in our business. I think that there's, we all have like kind of the, we all get geeked out on certain things that different sounds are doing around the country. And so you kind of have that aspect with the social media, but from a chef's perspective, I mean, you have people who just 
it's a celebrity situation now. So people, the social media is so powerful because then people feel like they have that connection with that person. So I definitely think that it's power, very powerful tool and can be used to any business's advantage, but especially from a, a small business, small restaurant perspective. Has the distributor scene changed in Chicago since you've had Vera or Carnival? I mean, have you seen new portfolios get offered that have allowed you to help do what you're doing? Absolutely. Even before before I went to Carnival, back in the day, like those rush street days, it was kind of, it was, you know, a Southern wine and spirits world, everything. It was a, a time where... Again, because of the restaurants, because of the restaurant scene that that it was, that made sense. And, you know, as we have had these great chefs in Chicago, open places, you know, when Paul opened Blackbird, you know, Paul and Donnie opened Blackbird well over, what is it, 10, 15 years now, I, I think they've been open. When they opened, it was like, it really started changing the scene of, of restaurants in general and showcasing that there was a market for more than possibly, you know, mass produced big new world wines or Italian wines. And so it gave an opportunity for a lot of smaller companies to open, which has been exciting because now you can show that wines from all over, all over the world and and different styles can pair really well with sometimes challenging modern cuisine. So you started seeing small distributors pop up like Cream Wine Company. Cream Wine Company is been around just over, I think, 11 years now. And that's an extraordinary company that that works with all of these, you know, a lot of independent producers that wouldn't have had a fighting chance, you know, 15, 20 years ago in this market. So you definitely have started to see a lot of small independent distributors come into this market. And it also gives, from a buying perspective, it gives us a lot of choice, which is great because now you can really have kind of this eclectic program that really didn't exist besides like big burgundy houses and like you said italian and bordeaux you you can do so many other things now because we have options which we didn't back then and you see it as reciprocal like the distributors are there because the restaurants are there absolutely yeah they one doesn't exist without the other you know i think that we talk about these really kind of nerdy regions of the world that we that we love to champion and those don't exist if you don't have the buyers who have the cuisine and the restaurants to to put those those wines on the shelf so um, i think it's definitely reciprocal how do you see the restaurant scene in chicago evolving over the next 10 years trotter's dead restaurants not there anymore he trained a generation of people who seem to be all throughout the city they seem to have certain things in common, technique focused often, uh, certain professional standards looking towards Europe, but a lot of pride in America, certain style and flair often. That's the chef side. On the wine side, you had Larry Stone, you had Joe Spellman, you had you know people at Everest, and then now you have you know what I would say is a couple generations down from that of uh, people working as sommeliers in the city. What's going to be the next? iteration of Chicago? You know, I, like I said, I I think that the, the wine community is starting to really come together. And I think while we see that grow and, and get really strong, I'm hoping that you're going to see a lot of chefs get back to doing exactly what 
Chef Trotter championed, which was cooking for wine. He was someone who who did that and and really said these two things belong together at the table. So I'm hoping with the alumni of Trotter's just uh, started the Trotter Project, which is an exciting adventure for everyone to be involved in in the Chicago community. And I think when you're starting to see things like that, you're going to hopefully see this movement of of wine being more accepted and and being not so scary for people and really catapulting that with restaurants. I see already this trend of people getting sort of back to the basics and kind of back to the the old school, you know, kind of ways. You know, right now we're seeing this whole new surge of Italian restaurants. You know, everybody kind of was like, let's get away from Italian because there's definitely a Chicago Italian restaurant kind of stigma. And so people wanted to get away from that and kind of show that we're not just, you know, a spaghetti and meatballs type of city, which was great. But now you're starting to see people get back to that. And it's like when you're getting back into cultural cooking, such as Italian, it's like wine belongs at the table. So I think we're we're starting to see this shift where the Chicago wine community is is pushing that forward a little bit, which is exciting. Liz Mendez, she's seen a few generations of wine and chefs and restaurants in Chicago, and she's looking forward to the next one. Thank you for being here today. Thanks for having me. Liz Mendez of Vera Wine Bar and Restaurant. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.